All right. Uh, hello, everyone. So welcome to um, what will now be the third episode of uh, Reading Tolkien podcast here with Razib. So how's it going, Razib? I'm good. That's good. And um, so I've already got a couple of episodes up um, and uh, we just did an intro episode and then I sort of, I was originally going to um, release the second episode that I did. I was originally going to stitch it together with the first podcast, but I thought it could be fun to, um, to just release them separately. So I did that. And the second podcast that, that we have up at the moment <coughs> was, uh, or is an interview with a guy called um, Daniel Stride, who is a, a blogger in New Zealand, actually. And um, all the details sort of for where to find that, are, you know, uh, they're on Twitter various other places they should be at every sort of location where the podcast is um is up and you know he just writes about uh, well various things new zealand politics but <laughs> perhaps of of more interest to people you know anyone listening to this might be uh his stuff on tolkien of course and um you know he wrote something recently about the amazon issue with the, the nudity thing which seems to have died down it was a bit of a it was a bit of a silly um silly topic but we did discuss that a little bit um suffice to say neither of us think there's all that much to be worried about at the moment um anyway so give that a listen if you haven't done um the first two podcasts um are a little amateurish hopefully now that i have a proper mic my uh, my sound will be better and also um you should have heard before this uh a musical a musical introduction something that sounds you know not just a cold opening, so hopefully that will will make will make things a little more you know approachable for those who are used to used to the regular sort of podcast format. And um, yeah, apart from that, I think today we're just going to sort of get right into into things. So uh, as I mentioned in the last two podcasts, um, I wanted to sort of begin by <clears throat> not with. Uh, some sort of, you know, major work like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, all the other podcasts do that, and that's great. But I wanted to start, you know, somewhere a bit different, just, you know, for variety's sake, if, if for no other reason. And um, so we're going to start with um, this little story. Uh, well, it, it's it's not a complete story, of course. It's in Unfinished Tales um, called uh, Eldarion and Arendis. So... Uh, as I, as I said, it, it's in that sort of volume that um, has been around now for quite a while since 1980, so over 40 years now. 40 years, indeed. This is the this is the anniversary year, and um, and uh, you know there are a variety of, of stories in that uh, in that volume. Um, it's I don't know how many pages. It's you know almost six six hundred or so pages. So there's a lot of stuff in there. So um, if you haven't read that, um, you know I'd highly recommend it and. This is one of the stories that deals with the sort of Numenor Second Age stuff. And I wanted to start there because, of course, we've already discussed the show a little bit um, and we know that that will be set um, during the Second Age. That's not to say that they will be adapting this particular story, um, although I would like to see it adapted at some stage. That would be kind of, kind, of, kind of different, I think. Um, but, um, you know, nonetheless, I think it's an interesting place to, um, to start thinking about this period as it were so um i don't know what what was your uh sort of initial thoughts about this particular story <laughs> yeah so um 
I read this uh, in Unfinished Tales mm-hmm. uh, when I was, was I four, 14. Um, right, yeah. The first time I read this, uh, reread it for this podcast. Um, and what did I say? So, you know, with, with Tolkien, uh, I think you tend to set it next to Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit and Unfinished Tales as a whole, The Silmarillion as well. But, um, you know, this particular story, there's such a different tone. Um, I would say like almost there's a wistfulness, uh, to the Aldarian character, uh, just, just in terms of like, he's kind of a heterodox person is the way I would describe it. Um, whereas, uh, and, uh, you know, a woman, uh, uh, Arendus, uh, looms large in the story and and no offense, but uh, on the whole, women don't loom large in the rest of Tolkien's oeuvre. They're more kind of like background characters. Well, I would say not in the Lord of the Rings anyway, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fair because, uh, you know, in some of the Silmarillion, they actually do. But yeah. Um, in any case, like the stuff that people read, let's be frank, um, you know, uh, with completeness. Yeah, sure. yeah. But um, so, I mean, that was a little different. Um, and uh, yeah, it felt, um, is it, you know, there, there's kind of also like this is a part of history that isn't spoken of too much. But, you know, in the back notes of some of Tolkien's work. Uh, you know, it's alluded to, so it's kind of seeing the framework in higher relief. I felt like that in terms of the world building and just, you know, the world of Numenor, which is a word. Numenor is a word. Um, you know, people who've seen the movies, you know, they say the blood of Numenor runs thin. Like, what does that mean? In the books, <laughs> yeah. Numenor looms a little larger. But Numenor is just a legend. It's a myth. It's a name. It's a history, and in this, um, in some of the unfinished tales, and obviously Eldarion and Arendus, uh, Numenor is not a myth. Numenor is concrete. It's flesh. It's a place um, with some dramatic tension here within the story of someone who is a who is, you know, frankly not happy with their almost utopian lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, why? Why would you want to go back to Middle Earth? You're in Numenor. Like, you were given basically heaven on earth. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's interesting. And I suppose one thing to perhaps note about um, this story just from the start is that um, uh, we think it was in existence, for, you know, by about 1965, um, at least according to the introduction. Um, so about 10 years after Lord of the Rings. Um, and there were quite a few of these sort of unfinished stories that seem to have been <clears throat> written around that time. And they they seem to, um, you know, they have an interesting relationship with, you know, as you say, the, the books that people actually read, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, which, you know, for the most part, I suppose, you know, uh, I don't know, for 80%, 90% of the people who read Tolkien is probably only going to be those two books. Um, I... I don't know about the Silmarillion, but you know, obviously, it, it, it's pretty, you know, famous or perhaps infamous for, um, uh, you know, for, for not sort of having been read, I suppose, um, even by people who buy it or who bought it when it when it first came out. Um, so you know, you have these two these two major sort of works that were published in his lifetime, and then um, you know, this is something we can talk about more. But of course, later we have. Um, we have these uh, posthumously published books like Unfinished Tales and um, 
obviously they're, as you say, they're not as widely read as, as the other books. And so I think that's, that there's a certain, um, there's something unfortunate about that because I think, you know, as you see in this particular story, it does give a sort of a, a wider and interesting view of, of how he was sometimes thinking about his mythology and also how he was sort of interacting with his earlier um, earlier stories and some of the uh, responses that those better known, you know, actually finished books got, like, for example, The Place of Women or, um, or whatever. And I think this particular story is, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a bit more, but um, that's perhaps <laughs> sort of gender, I suppose, is one of the major themes of this story as perhaps, you know, it isn't for The Lord of the Rings except in the negative sense, as you say. Mm-hmm. Well, so The Hobbit is a... Um, I wouldn't say it's juvenile, but it's very accessible to juveniles. Um, it's an yeah. adventure story. Um, yeah. That's its narrative thread. That's kind of its scaffold. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, Return of the King. Um, these books are grand epic fantasy with kind of like a cosmic scaffold. And then mm-hmm. the characters kind of um, cling to that scaffold. Uh, this this work um, and some of the other unfinished tales, uh, uh, it's it's different. Um, I, I don't think that they're classical adventure stories, um, and there's no grand narrative arc because this is a bridge period, uh, a period between um, the mythology of mythological period of the first age and um, the adventure period, uh, kind of the end of times period of the third age. Yeah. You know, um, the second age is a bridge pa- bridge period. Um, what what happened during the second age? Well, I mean, a lot actually happened. Sauron happened, and Gilgalad happened. But mm. again, rings. Yeah, yeah, it's not really explored in detail. So, um, I think um, one of the issues why I feel like Aldarion and Arendis's story was was quite different in tenor for me is that I didn't get this. Uh, is I don't know if the term is mythopoetic, but I mean it's just like yeah. this grand meta narrative um, yeah. in this because yeah. it's a story of two people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and one person, Aldarian, who is kind of weird. Um, <laughs> you know, he's kind of atypical for his Numenorean yeah. elite lineage that he comes from. He's an explorer. He's a wanderer. Now, this weirdness, this exploration of a parameter space that's outside of the core. Um, mm-hmm. is important because his explorations um, lead to some consequences in the world itself. Yes, yeah, right. yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, I suppose I should probably say at this stage that for those who may not have read the story, um, so this story uh, deals with um, – it's essentially a, a sort of a domestic story, really. It's really about this marriage um, that goes badly and um, – yeah, as Daniel, uh, into the, the guy I interviewed last um, last time, he, he sort of he put it thus. He said, sort of, you know, the, the marriage of Eldarion and Arendus is sort of the only instance in Tolkien where, you know, marriage fails, where the husband is kind of um, kind of neglectful, um, you know, in a sort of what what you might call a kind of realist way. You know, he's not he's not a He's not a crazy elf like you know. There are examples in the Silmarillion of, of sort of you know failed marriages, but usually there's there's some sort of um, magical or, um, as you say, sort of mythopoetic reason for that. This one is sort of drawn in, a, I would say, you know, a fairly psychologically realistic way. Um, 
but then it also does have, um, uh, I suppose it, it has resonances with the later story because Eldarion, who's the, the main sort of male character, um, is sort of implicated in the beginning of Numenorean involvement in Middle-earth, which um, which later draws in um, sort of colonial aspects and, uh, and things like that. And there's a question about um, how... Uh, sort of how Numenorean interaction in, in Middle Earth and indeed in Numenor itself, um, which is, as you say, kind of a it's kind of a paradise in in a way. Although it's still a mortal world, it's not you know it's not the Undying Lands, um, as it were. Um, you know, there's, there's a question there about how uh, the ambitions and sort of um, I suppose you know the way that Eldarion is driven towards the sea, towards exploration you know, the way that might be morally dubious or, um, you know, how it sort of sets in motion the kinds of um, the kinds of troubles that we find um, occurring later, especially during the downfall of Numenor, you know, how that goes, um, which we might talk about another time. But um, so it does, it does sort of have a relationship to, um, to these larger sort of concerns, I suppose. But Still, it's drawn, yeah, in that in that very sort of intimate way, which you know I find kind of interesting and it, and I suppose unique in a sense. Um, yeah. So um, it, this is going to be really strange, but um, yeah. I almost felt like uh, Numenor and uh, Aldarion. Uh, this is uh, the end of uh, the last man and the end of history, where um, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, Numenor is kind of outside of history. I mean, it's this like utopian paradise, um, you know, settled by these lucky people that are given long lives and they can choose when they want to die and they're tall and, you know, ev- every man is courageous and every woman is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> and something in Aldarian's spirit pulls him back into history and the world and the history in the second age is the history of the wars of Gil-galad as he resists the rise of Sauron so mm. there's a lot of stuff going on across the ocean back to the east and mm. um, I you know obviously his wanderlust wasn't driven initially by this but it became inextricably connected to that. And so this is a character story of two individuals with very, very conventional human tensions, but those conventional human tensions and differences in personality are superimposed on a grander historical process of uh, just Numenor becoming fused back in to middle earth, which we see in the lineage of, um, you know, the Kings of Arnor and Gondor, uh, you know, these, these people are effused people of middlemen and, uh, Numenorians. And it, you know, arguably starts mm-hmm. with Aldarian and his tensions with his father and his wife and, and mm-hmm. just the people around him. And also, you know, obviously he brought others with him. Others must have, I mean, these, these ships, they're not, um, you know, he's not the only one on the ship. <laughs> yep. You know, yeah. There's other so people has, who have, other people who have the same feelings. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, he establishes a, a guild of venturers, as they're called in the story, um, and then sets up shop um, in a ship and then an island off the coast. So he sort of, you know, separates himself off from the the mainland a little bit. Um, 
of course, literally for, for much of the time because he sails away. But um, but even when he's there, he can't seem to, you know, he doesn't seem to um, want to sort of stay on the, on the, you know, on terra firma, as it were. He seems to, to always be wanting to escape. And you know, when he is there, he's sort of engaging in sort of, um, well, forestry, basically. He's sort of, he becomes the, uh, what do they call it, the Lord of Foresters or something, um, Master of Forests. Um, I think, and um, you know, he's 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 basically, um, you know, in charge of of, of the plantations uh, in Numenor, of course, designed to build ships. And Arendis, um, the wife character, she um, she loves trees, or at least she does at first. Um, you know, so she's a kind of perhaps Tolkien surrogate in that way. She's sort of attached to the earth. She's attached to the, um, you know, the trees. And then, um, you know, as Eldarion begins to sort of cut down all the trees in Numenor um, to build ships. Um, and then, you know, of course, he starts cutting down the trees in, in Middle-earth as well. Um, you know, she comes to sort of hate the trees as well, and in the end she can only stand the sort of sheep pastures. <laughs> because, um, you know, because that's that's the only sort of place where – and she surrounds herself with a house of women and, and sort of um, – you know, detests the company of men, and then she brings up her daughter, sort of in the same, um, which is a very interesting. I sort of, I, I really wish that that part of the of the of the story had been developed more. But the daughter who that, that they have sort of grows up to, um, you know, she she's sort of like Queen Elizabeth the first. She's sort of um, she rebuffs any marriage proposals, and then she rules as a queen, and you know, sort of. Um, I think I think the throne ends up being inherited by. Uh, you know, one of her cousins or or, or some or cousins or, or brothers or something, mm. um, and, and don't think she has children from memory. Um, you know, sort of. So yeah, it, it's a so that, that there are several sort of themes I suppose we can think about, which of course we might know from the Lord of the Rings. There's sort of an the ecology theme, um, and then there's the the sort of sea longing, which is what Tolkien calls it, which is what Aldarion is sort of drawn towards. Um, and, uh, and of course, as you sort of mentioned, there's also the, um, the issue of mortality and the fact that the Numenorians um, live these long lives and the particular strain of Numenorians who are sort of the rulers are given sort of extra long lives. And of course, a part of the, part of the, the trouble in the story is that, um, Eldarion essentially spends decades away and, you know, meanwhile, Arendis has a long life, but eventually she sort of, you know, after, I don't know, 50, 60 years or something, catches up to middle age, you know, what would be the equivalent to middle age sort of in our, you know, in our sort of circumstances. But Eldarion is, you know, is still use, uh, youthful and, and there's sort of the question of, you know, when he'll, um, when he'll, he will settle down um, mm -hmm. and actually, actually marry her, which sort of does, but it, it all then goes downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a, um, you know, as you were saying, uh, this character based story, there's a lot of, uh, the tension is driven by the, the characters and their arc. And, you know, what we're talking about here are just very personal perspectives, um, priorities, concerns, contrast that with, um, the Hobbit or the fellowship of the ring, uh, where the personal is definitely just not a primary concern insofar as people are, these individuals are caught up in the yeah. plot. The, it's yeah. like they're caught up in an undertow. Like Bilbo yeah. Baggins 
Gandalf is going to take him to be the burglar. Okay, <laughs> yeah, doesn't really sure. matter what Bilbo wants. And then when it comes to Frodo, um, that's almost like he feels an obligation. It's mm. not like he's excited <laughs> to go and take the One Ring to Mordor. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know. I just want to take a detour here because you know I've read the Lord of the Rings as you might imagine a few times, but I'm never quite sure about what Frodo's motivation really is or if he even has one or if it's just a sense of sort of duty um yeah i don't know i'd be interested yeah i feel i feel like with frodo um you know and i first read lord of the rings when i was really young and then i reread it i think it's eh, maybe in my like late teens early 20s like (laughs) but in any case um you know from what i remember I feel like Frodo has a sense of duty and responsibility because he's Bilbo's heir. Mm, so mm. this is what, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the Baggins have to do. And he has a sense of duty because, you know, I mean, who are the hobbits? The hobbits are English gentry. Yes. <laughs> and so they live these lives of leisure. But the flip side of it is unlike our our modern Western elites who are totally – meritocratic and have no sense of virtue, no sense of duty and no sense of responsibility beyond their own consumption and power. Uh, you know, like these English gentry, they, they were called to serve. Frodo was called to serve because he is a wealthy leisured hobbit, you know, the nephew of Bilbo Baggins who, you know, had fame and success and wealth. And so, um, yeah, I think it's not that, Frodo was looking for adventure or, or anything like that. It's no. just he had a duty and a responsibility, and this was his role. This was his appointed role, and he had to do it. And um, there are other characters, like obviously Aragorn resists that. But ultimately, Aragorn also concedes and caves into the reality of his destiny. And so I feel like in, in Fellowship of the Ring, um, in, in the Lord of the Rings series, people have destinies Yes. And sometimes they're tragic, sometimes they're grand, but they are what they are. And with hindsight, you could just kind of see that that's where they're going to go. Um, I think mm. with, you know, back to like the unfinished tales, they're unfinished. Um, you don't see these grand meta narratives, partly because, you know, it wasn't fleshed out. Like these are kind of first passes, first thoughts. Maybe they would have gotten snapped together into something at some point. You don't know. Um, I think that it might just be an artifact that this was the end of Tolkien's life and he never really developed and exposited it. Mm. Yeah, possibly. Um, It's hard to know, of course, um, you know, how this might have turned out had it, um, had it actually been finished. And of course, some are more unfinished than others. (laughs) You know, there's quite a few, um, the the Galadriel and Caliborn stuff is, is, you know, more or less just consists of notes and things, which is, all very very difficult to sort of pass, but um, I think though I think there's a general point there that um, probably does apply to this this story in particular. Um, yeah, and that is that it's just it's just it reads more like a novel, and it's developed um, more in the novelistic. The characters are developed in a in a in a sort of novelistic sensibility, you know, which which implies a kind of worldview, I suppose, which is that you know people have agency, um, people make their own choices um you know they're not while they're obviously influenced by certain factors they're um you know they're, they're still sort of free agents um on some some basic level um and of course not every novel um i suppose subscribes to that uh particular point of view and 
I think the Lord of the Rings, for the most part, um, by comparison, uh, does have a kind of sensibility, like you sort of say. Um, there seems to be some sort of providence at work, some sort of fate, some sort of destiny. In The Hobbit, there's kind of luck. You know, Bilbo does a lot of a lot of things by luck. Um, and, you know, I think perhaps the only, um, I don't know, one, one of the few um, exceptions in The Lord of the Rings perhaps is Eowyn, who's, of course, you know, the main sort of, has, has a kind of, um, has a kind of character arc in the Lord of the Rings as sort of the main female. And, you know, she's sort of explicitly drawn as um, as attempting to rebel against, in a sense, her fate um, that's sort of delivered to her by her culture, that is to, you know, stay at home and um, sort of tend the men when, when they come back from from battle. And I don't know, I, I, I sort of saw in her character a sort of genesis of perhaps the kind of... Um, uh, you know, the kind of critique that, you know, perhaps is implicitly um, offered in this book or in this, um, you know, in this story um, by, you know, in Arendus's character. Um, although, you know, it's important to say that I suppose neither Eldarion um, or Arendus um, are particularly uh, sympathetic at the end, I think. Uh, they both sort of share um, plenty of blame. At least that's my reading. Um and then also their daughter, who is, of course, drawn, you know, only really in notes, but, you know, whose character seems to be, um, as I said, a kind of a kind of uh, Elizabethan in a way. She's a ruling queen, but, um, you know, she re- refuses the company of men, etc. And, um, you know, perhaps, I, I don't know how, how far I would want to take this line of thought, but, you know, perhaps in there there is a kind of, and we see this in other post-Lord of the Rings stories, there are certain areas where you can see Tolkien maybe thinking about critiquing, um, you know, some features of the Lord of the Rings that perhaps over time he sort of, um, you know, sort of defective perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what you think. Well, I, so here's one speculation that I'll put out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously a lot of this material is very old. It's Genesis goes back to, you know, what, like his childhood even, but definitely like the twenties and, into the 30s okay. where the hobbit came out right but um mm-hmm. lord of the rings uh though that trilogy was published after world war ii and people always wonder like oh is this like some sort of allegory about war and industrialization <laughs> and you know tolkien mm-hmm. said a variety of different things um, on the whole he said no but i think it's really hard to to deny the fact that he is a person of his time and he's influenced by the you know whatever the norms the social views the concerns and so mm-hmm. even if it's not explicit i think it might have had a shaping influence uh sure. and so okay so he's going to the 1960s and he's writing um why would it not the mores of the 60s uh of you know england of you know mod and all these other things why would mm-hmm. that not have started to kind of he, he's a conservative catholic dude yes but still Mm-hmm. I think those those changes would have shaped him in some way. Um, there's the you know new journalism. There's new wave science fiction. There's all these different um, literary uh, devices, techniques that are innovative that are a little different. So you know after World War II, he comes out with this trilogy of like a grand war between good and evil. You know, with a kind of like a very very like irredeemably evil central character i mean later on we find out sauron's backstory and that he was actually one of the greatest of the maiar but i mean we didn't know that at the time 
Um, <laughs> and so, okay, it's a little suspicious that this is right after World War II, but whatever. <laughs> now, uh, this story that you're talking about, that we're talking about here, about Tar Aldaria and Arundis, um, you know, this is kind of coming, it's precipitating out in a time historically um, when people are trying to collapse the grand narratives and talking about like individual freedom, individual liberty, uh, doing what feels good, what feels good to you. <laughs> yep. Right. And these two characters are, in a way, much more individualist. I mean, I'm saying the exact same thing that I said before, but in different terms. They're much more individualistic than, you know, Frodo Baggins, than Gandalf, than Aragorn. Like, these characters have roles to play in a grand uh, narrative, whereas these characters in Unfinished Tales, um, they're much more personal, even though their personal choices, especially Eldarion's case, have grand historical outcomes, impacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right um, in, a, in a general sense. And yeah, I mean, it, I haven't thought about the 60s as a kind of immediate influence on Tolkien, but you're right that, um, you know, that could be, uh, that could be quite salient, Um in this in this story, because as I said, it you know seems to have been written during that period, um, mm. and perhaps he was you know explicitly thinking about that, I guess. And um, well, so I, you know what I, I do want to say, like though, I'm not even saying that it's explicit. I think like mm. Tolkien is asked all sorts of things before he dies about his influences, and he tended on the whole to just say that you know it wasn't an influence of the modern times, and he would say weird things. Like at some point, he said. <laughs> He said his world and Lord of the Rings is fundamentally a Catholic um, work, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, he can say whatever he wants to, but I don't think it's fundamentally Catholic. I mean, obviously, no, there's kind of why. a monotheistic general framework there with Ilvatar and stuff like that. But I mean, Catholic, like what? But, you know, he's a believing Catholic. He's a conservative Catholic. And he probably wants to believe that his Catholicism influenced this work in some way. And maybe yeah. it did in some tenuous general way. But you don't. You can't take what he just said at face value. Like that's more of a wish and a hope on his part, right? Yes. And so when he says, "Oh, like this is not about now. Like I'm trying to create a mythology for the British people and all this stuff." Yes, I mean he means that sincerely. But of course, it's affected by the now. Like look at the ethnography of, you know, the men of Harad and the Easterlings. Like where does that come from? You know, it's just like okay, like early 20th century like racial theory. You know, the yellow people, the black people. I mean, it's obviously all in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, he never calls them yellow people. That's <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, he's, they, they, are, they are described as sallow. Um, yeah, I suppose. Somehow. The Easterlings are described as sallow. And also, like, they're, they have, like, you know, like, flat faces. I mean, they're Mongolian-type people. Like, some of them are. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I agree that the orcs are, yeah, there's a certain unfortunate... Uh, characterization of the orcs um in particular which he sort of relates to mongolians which is... yeah i mean yeah i mean and like th- these are just like they were it wasn't a an age that was politically correct in our ways <laughs> no well definitely not um yeah no for sure uh so i suppose um just shifting gears just a little bit um i wanted to have a look at i don't know i suppose a couple of um, you know, brief excerpts from the the book and, um, you know, see what we thought about those. Um, 
the first, I don't know, is on page 239 in my my edition. I'll just sort of I'll just sort of read it out. And this just talks about um, Eldarian's um, uh, sea longing. So uh, as we've sort of said, he's one of the you know major characters, uh, one of the two major characters, um, and uh, he he is sort of pushed, as it were, or you know he finds himself somehow um, drawn to um, to voyage across the sea. And what's interesting in the story is we, we we almost never hear about what he actually does on these these voyages. We always sort of stay on on uh, Numenor, and when Eldarion's gone, we tend to stay with um, Arendus and sort of her world. And then when Eldarion comes back, we sort of see um, see the kinds of interactions, you know, increasingly kind of strained that they um, that they have. And this is just uh, when he's sort of journeying across Middle Earth. This maybe, sorry, when he's journeying across Numenor, I should say, um, you know, he sees the sea and he has sort of has this this um, this moment, and it says. Um, then suddenly the sea longing took took him as as though a great hand had been laid on his throat and his heart hammered and his breath was stopped he strove for the mastery and at length turned his back and continued on his journey and by design he took his way through the wood where he'd seen Arendus riding as one of the elder this was earlier when they sort of had met for the first time um now 15 years gone almost he looked to see her so once more but she was not there and desire to see her face again hastened hastened him so that he came to Beragar's house um, before evening, and that's her father, um, I think. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have this nice this nice moment where, you know, he's sort of drawn um, so sort of desperately, I suppose, between um, between his sort of sea longing and and then sort of the domestic you know domestic life that his society at least expects him to um, participate in. I don't know, what, what did you sort of make of, we've sort of spoken about it a little bit, but Eldarion's character and, and you know, this, this sort of um, apparently um, irrational kind of desire that he has to mm-hmm. escape his, as you say, kind of paradise. <laughs> well, he's a man child. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, I feel, I feel him too. I mean, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm married. I have kids. You know, trying to live the bourgeois life, and there's something <laughs> in the bourgeois life that's, uh, you know, you're not you're not 25 year old dude that has crazy adventures anymore. Okay, mm. and so um, that's what I felt about this guy. This guy is uh, he's living the life. Like, he's doing <laughs> the crazy adventure for decades. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Him and his boys. Yeah. 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 And so and this is, um, and this is yeah. what's interesting, right? I mean, it just as you say, it goes on for decades and decades and decades, and um, because they have this long life, you know, they can sort of, they can, um, they can do this, you know, or at least uh, Eldarian can, um, you know, where 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 someone else might be limited to say, you know, ten years or something, um, he can just he can take a thirty year voyage and come back and, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, so, do you feel that? Um, there's not a lot there in that sort of disposition towards sort of his longing, except a kind of a kind of um, immaturity, or is there something more? Spiritual? You know, I don't even I don't even want to say immature necessarily. I guess I guess that was the implication mm. of what I said. But I, you know, um, mm. there is the yearning to do different things, maybe even great things, surprising things, audacious things. Yeah, yeah. that is yeah. not. That is not compatible with being a householder. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's difficult. It's difficult. You're taking opportunity costs. You're taking away time and energy from focusing on the household to doing these crazy things, you know, and vice versa. And so I think that that's the tension that I see in Eldarian's character, um, which is a normal tension. Many, you know, millennial, Gen X, Zoomer, <laughs> you know, men today, mm. they feel the same thing when they're like, ah, you know, I'm 35. I don't need to get married yet. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to keep yeah. doing my thing, chill with my boys, get drunk on Friday night, you know. <laughs> and so um, yeah. these these voyages, these quests, I mean, they're probably mm. fun, you know? Yeah, for sure. yeah. It's probably like, oh, I'm not going to get married until I just, you know, or whatever. I'm not, until I get this out of my system. And mm. I mean, he's a powerful dude. He can do what, what he wants and he's going to do what he wants. And we should say, of course, that he is the heir to the throne of, of Numenor. So, yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, just a side note, something interesting about him. He, um, you know, in the story, I don't think it mentions it here explicitly, but in the, in, in the story, he is, he is said to have chained into the law so that the um, the eldest um, child of the ruler could could inherit, whether female or male. So this is why after Eldarion's time we get this succession of um, powerful ruling queens in Numenor, um, which you know we might look for in the uh, Amazon show. No doubt they will make use of that um, that bit of knowledge. And there's you know there's interesting little tidbits and stories about a few of them, but um, yeah, that goes back to. Eldarian, the um, Eldarian, the Gen X guy. <laughs> um, yeah, and I suppose um, I just wanted to read something from um, from a paper just briefly that that sort of bears on this. And I think you know this this really gets to the heart of some of the um, I don't know the thematic content of the story um, of this particular story, but then also you know the importance that, that, that those kind of themes have for. Um, for the Lord of the Rings and some of the other um, the other Tolkien stories, and this is from um, a paper by Richard Matthews, published in the um, journal Myth Law, which looks at you know C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and stuff. It was published in 1992, and for those interested, it's called "The Edges of Reality in Tolkien's Tale of Eldarion and Arendus. And this is one of the few sort of articles I could find that actually you know deals with the story. Um, so it's a really it's a short article, but it's really um, you know, if you can, if you can read it, it's it's a nice it's a nice little sort of explication. Um, and so he says, I can find it. There we are. He says, you know, in this story, there there are a trinity of limits, which inexorably become clear in the the tale. Um, and we've we've sort of hinted at these sort of so time, ecology, and emotion. Um, and and he says that the vividness with which these real human limitations are felt within the tale allows us to see that um, Tolkien's world involves more than an eternal cosmic struggle between good and evil. What becomes evident in Numenor is that this uh, dwelling place of the greatest race of men is complicated by some limits more complex than, than black and white, than good or evil. So as the cycles of time, ecology and emotion take on weight, the, the very island of Numenor sinks beneath the sea and disappears, the flat earth becomes a sphere, the mortal world of men is set apart from the undying lands. The three-dimensional third age um, begins, and um, you know I think that sort of sort of captures what you were you know saying saying before. But um, I think it also sort of gestures towards this this idea that Numenor itself is a kind of weird place because it's neither it's neither a paradise 
sort of as the elves would understand it, where they can retreat to and sort of live in bliss um, forever. But nor is it Middle Earth, nor is it completely, um, you know, open to the sort of uh, the ravages of entropy, you know, which, you know, is a big reason that, um, of course, the elves eventually devise the ring, the rings of, of power to sort of to slow entropy and sort of, um, and and Tolkien at least implicitly seems to see this as a kind of overall perhaps a kind of bad thing, you know, and, and that that desire to sort of stop entropy seems to be what is um, kind of what is for him the ultimate origin of evil. It's to control. It's to master. To sort of you know, um, but I think in a story like this you know, we're able to see a sort of ambiguous presentation of, of that, um, yeah. that dynamic. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, again, the fading of the mythopoetic element, the meta narrative, um, in this story, in these stories is such where it's like, kind of like the black and white cliche mm-hmm. of, you know, yeah. good versus evil is, um, is not, is not as important because, mm the choices that they make are the choices that they think are best for them, but they're not necessarily the right choices. Like you don't know what the right choices are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, as you say in, in the Lord of the Rings, um, if we're thinking of that as a, again, as a kind of comparison, um, as it were, the right choice, the right moral direction to go in is, is sort of, is in most cases fairly plain. Um, course there's the big quest to destroy the ring that's obviously the right thing you know to do um we can't keep the ring that would that would sort of pervert us eventually you know um we can't really throw it away because then you know that would also that would also at some level constitute a kind of moral failure um because we haven't we haven't we haven't actually you know dealt with the problem left it for people of later generations or whatever um you know we have to destroy the ring and there is there is i think um with all due respect some some moral complexity that's introduced, especially in the the the, the, the Frodo Sam Gollum trinity, that that does introduce some sort of uncertainties with regards to moral choices. You know what to do with Gollum, how to how to how to um, how to sort of, as it were, use him, how to how he should be treated, um, and then Gollum himself, of course, faces those kinds of um, moral questions. But I think, um, in a sort of a general sense, um, your reading is is right. There's there's never a sort of uh, there's never really a question as to, you know, uh, sort of what to do with the ring, at least, um, on a moral, you know, on a moral scale, it's, you know, altogether sort of evil. Um, but I think that, uh, I think that's, yeah, especially the, some of the Silmarillion tales and perhaps the second age as well is a, is a kind of venue where, um, yeah, I don't know, more, more sort of, um, I don't want to say moral, moral conundrum, moral, you know, morally difficult situations uh, sort of are explored um, in greater, in greater detail. And of course, the Silmarillion is, is kind of, is kind of an abridgment itself. So it doesn't have that kind of depth of character that, you know, we might yeah. look for in a novel, but, um, you know, had it been adapted to, you know, novels, maybe it would have, but, <laughs> but um yeah, I definitely think that in 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 the first and second ages, there's this the space for that sort of that sort of thing, um, which we see a glimpse of. Yeah, in this um, in this particular story, which is um, you know, which is interesting, I think. And you know, I mean, another issue here is um, 
which it reflects other things in other of the novels of Tolkien is that, you know, the, the difference in class or status, uh, as you're saying, yeah. um, he doesn't age, the, you know, their weird biology, the, the <laughs> super elite do not age as fast as the non super elite. And, yeah. You know, the middlemen, normal humans age really slow. So, I mean, these people are living what, like 500 years as opposed to, you know, yeah, I don't know. I'll just check how long did Eldarion actually reign? It should say. Luckily, there is a um, there is another little thing in Unfinished Tales called the Line of Elros, Kings of Numenor, which uh, which explains all that. But let me just have a look. Um, so it says um, he ruled 192 years, um, surrendered the scepter, blah blah blah. Um, yeah, so 192 years. So, you know, presumably, um, I don't think it says exactly how long he lived, but um, presumably he lived, you know, quite a quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> well over yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, so you see this tension where um, it's kind of, it, it's a little bit like a science fiction story of, of yeah. time dilation. Do yeah, you think that? Right. I thought that a little. Yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah, not explicitly, but yes. Um, there is this weird effect that you know thing decades are going by and um you know he's away and sort of comes back and i don't know the the way that these people experience time is obviously quite different <laughs> i would say yeah yeah um at least the i don't know that their psychology is is not um, i mean it's understandable but it sort of it seems to um like it's relatable but it seems to take place over obviously these sort of over decades as opposed to um, as opposed to sort of you know several years or, or whatever, yeah. As yeah. we might experience a relationship, but yeah, yeah. It, it, that feature. There, yeah. there was a you know a, something. Um, the it's also the story is, is very human, um, mm. in a way, uh, because the choices that they make and the compromises that they make, a lot of people can relate to that. It's harder mm. to relate to. Um, harder to relate to being a ranger of the north and Aragorn refusing to take the crown as, you know, Isildur's heir. I mean, what the hell? What is that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, I understand what you're saying logically, but I don't even know how to start with trying to empathize with that. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I think an important feature of this story is that these people, you know, during the time which this is set, it's a time of peace. There's not a war going on. There's an intimation of Sauron, but it's not very explicit at the end. Um, and, you know, this is a, a kind of settled society, you know, it's an agrarian society, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's not, you said paradise before it's, it's, it, it's has features of that, but it's not quite, it, as I say, it's not a sort of a, an undying realm of bliss. It's not the heavenly Jerusalem. It's just, it's just a, um, you know, it's a mortal realm. Things just sort of happen perhaps psychologically, historically, socially, whatever on a, perhaps, you know, on a much greater longer time time frame i I guess um but we can still sort of relate to 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 those you know to those events and the choices that the characters make um and also i think you know something that's brought to mind the elves in this story and of of course the the elves are, are the immortal sort of beings um we don't really meet any but they do sort of appear at the wedding of of eldarion and arendus um and there's this lovely this lovely little um anecdote about the birds that um the elves give them these you know paired um paired birds 
you know, the, the birds are paired for life, they say, and, um, you know, they sit on the win- windowsill and follow them all around. And um, just I just thought it was kind of a funny little little thing. And then, of course, when they, of course, Erin just eventually, when she's in a bitter mood, dismisses them and they fly off, presumably back to, um, you know, back to the undying lands. And I just thought that was such a nice little illustration of the sort of incommensurability that we see between, you know, between the sort of the mortal realm as elevated as it might be in Numenor and then the 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 elvish sort of immortal sort of mm-hmm. if you like entropyless kind of even though yeah. that really makes no sense kind of space where the elves live and and um you know as i say the the, the elves are obviously important characters in, in lord of the rings and in other stories but but here they're really seen as a kind of other to use that jargon they're seen as a kind of um you know not in a not in a um not in necessarily a negative way but but in in a, in a sort of unattainable, um, yeah, I don't know. What, what did what did you think about the elves in this story? <laughs> yeah, um, this is a human story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If uh, uh, if um, I don't know if uh, Lord of the Rings is uh, Fellowship of the Rings is uh, the Odyssey or something. You know, <laughs> um, if 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 that trilogy is mm. the attempt to make legend and myth. Uh, this this story is not that at all. It's more like, I mean, it's not quite analogous, but it's like you know, you know, early nineteenth century novel or something. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's human concerns, human conflicts, mm. human goals, human trade offs. Whereas, mm. um, you know, Frodo holds the world in his hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. But what I think is interesting is that in the Calabeth, which is sort of the, um, you know, the Silmarillion story about the the downfall of Numenor, um, there's a kind of very definite um, bias in that story where, you know, the Numenorians, are, or at least the, the faction of Numenorians who eventually rebel against the gods, the Valar, um, and they do so precisely because they have uh, this sort of, um, they're in this sort of middle space where they're not quite, you know, they're not quite short lived like the men of Middle Earth, but they're not quite immortal like the elves. Um, you know, and they do that, they, they rebel precisely because um, they think that this is unfair, right? An unfair situation. And, and, you know, that yes, they're coaxed into it by Sauron and, you know, he's a kind of manipulator figure and, and clearly, but the sort of rhetorical, I don't know, bent, I guess, of the story is, is clearly that we're meant to, um, uh, we're not we're not meant to sympathise particularly with with those Numenorians, but I think here you sort of you do sympathise with that um, because with that point of view, if, if only implicitly, because um, you know we see how they're kind of there's this ban on them sailing west. They can't sort of you know, they can't actually visit the elves. The elves come and visit them occasionally, but you know they're these sorts of unattainable, um, as I say, sort of. This, this unattainable sort of pure sort of, you know, vision and, um, you know, the, the guy sort of, I don't know, I think it says he builds, the king builds a tower, you know, to, and sometimes he looks out across across the sea to the, the undying lands and longs for it, you know, but, but um, I think this too is sort of behind um, behind Eldarian's sort of, you know, sea longing. The, the longing is there for the unchanging, for the sort of undying, the, the um, you know, the ultimate, I don't know, 
<laughs> philosophically how you would you know the ultimate being or something you know <laughs> but the, the, um, gra the ground of being the ground of being yes yes that that desire is there and it kind of manifests in this this urge to you know sail the sea and you know tolkien sort of suggests implicitly that it's really that desire that lies behind their later colonial endeavors but you know they, they can rule middle earth but they can never attain immortality well, you know uh, as we're, we're, we're closing out um i want to you know talk real quickly about that um i think we talked yeah. earlier about that but um sure. colonial is not that is not a figurative metaphorical word they're literally colonies like so the numenorians yeah, created yeah. numenorians yeah. created colonies on middle earth the edge of middle earth and some of those numenorians are good and some of them are not good so you know they founded <laughs> the kingdom of gondor and arnor after the fall mm -hmm. of numenor um, isildur brought the House of Anatar, no, Anatar was the name for for Sauron, but um, um, they were a particular cadet branch of the ruling house. Mm, mm. Uh, you're talking about? Um, oh God, I can't remember now. You know this what I'm terrible. saying, though. Yeah, you know what I'm <laughs> like they were they yeah. were the princes of one. Yeah, they were the princes of. Oh, I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. <laughs> yeah, the um, princes of Andunier, the city. Yes, yes, that's the lords of Andunier. Mm, yes mm. and so um anyway so there they go so you know they show up um they're colonists they take over they transform you know middle earth western middle earth kind of in their in in their own image um yeah. in the south they're the black numenorians who mixed with certain men in harad and they weren't called black because of their physical appearance they're just called black numenorians because um they're basically with sauron uh, yeah so, yeah and they, they probably, some of them might have fled from Numenor during this fall, just like the Lords of Andunier did. And mm. so it's like they brought their own, <laughs> you know, their rivalries, they brought them to the mainland. And so um, in the context of everything else we know from Tolkien's work um, that's later on, this period, these people had a huge geopolitical impact because um, they are basically the foundation of the high culture of... Mm. Of Western Middle Earth, yeah, 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 um, for sure they are. Um, you know, and and I think one question I wanted to close out with, you know, asking asking you is, you know, how does this story? Do you think? And you know, we can talk about the uh, the Akalabeth, you know, another time the the whole downfall narrative. But how does this story in particular, perhaps, I don't know, change or should it change your perspective of, of the Lord of the Rings and Aragorn and the whole story of Gondor there? Um, which, as you say, you know, has its genesis as a kind of colonial outpost, um, even before it was founded as a separate country, if you like. Um, and obviously, you know, in most places that's presented as a kind of positive, in, in a kind of positive way. But there are other, there are other places in in unfinished tales and uh, and elsewhere where there's a kind of the larger historical perspective is given, which doesn't you know which is more neutral towards towards Numenorean um neutral or, or even um you know apprehensive about Numenorean imperialism um I don't know does that does that change the moral um I don't know the moral uh, uh character of Lord of the Rings um I, I think um I think uh, near the end of his life Tolkien was expanding and elaborating on the Numenoreans in a way that which made them more morally ambiguous than they are yeah. depicted in the earlier work when they are this race of yeah. godmen that provided <laughs> civilization to the people of Middle-earth. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, I, I think like this, if this is written in the later part of, the, of his life, as you're saying, mm-hmm. so I get unfinished tales confused with, I think lost tales sometimes. I don't know. Like, yeah. The lost tales were the first yeah, kind of story yeah. from his youth. Yeah. And, and like, that was really like interesting because you see there are the mm. fairies and they're basically not really <laughs> described as human. And they're these proto elves. They're super weird. So you can see how his own, <laughs> his own thinking evolved from the lost tales with unfinished mm. tales. I think you see where his thinking was evolving. He, I mean, he mm. was already quite an old man by this period and he didn't yes. live too much, too much past the sixties. I think he died in 72. So yeah, um, we never, we never, we never got to see. Mm, we mm. never got to see that Tolkien because he didn't live long enough. <laughs> but mm. I think he probably would not be writing the same stories in the 1970s or if no, he lived into yeah. the 80s that he did in the 1950s. Yeah, well, that that um, I definitely agree with. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's let's uh, let's finish up there. I think that was a good a good discussion. So um, you know, for those of you who. Um, who are interested in in the story, and you know this this obviously this discussion kind of presupposes that you've already read it um, because we didn't really spend much time th- summarizing it. So, apologies for those who who perhaps have not read it, but um, but uh, you know obviously I recommend it. It's a very interesting um, little read. It's fairly short, um, if unfinished. Although Christopher Tolkien's scholarship does a lovely job of um, you know sort of sort of uh finishing it finishing it out and and i think you know it, it seems it would have had a tragic ending um but i, I won't spoil that but um <laughs> you know had it been finished um you know so it's perhaps one of one of tolkien's less happy stories but uh, well worth a read so thanks razib um we'll leave it there and um you know some stage we'll come back and, and look at the akalabeth and and the sort of downfall <laughs> story and compare could it, could it could it be more evil sounding <laughs> yeah that's right yeah i mean if you, if someone comes up to you and they're like a calabeth you better run because <laughs> yes, yeah, they're yeah. up to no good yes i mean one of my favorite um i don't know the elvish languages of course tolkien developed quite highly but um the numenorean language um is 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 uh, of a wholly different character and um you know it's very interesting and uh, it's you know the, a lot of the grammar is quite well developed. It just has it has a smaller lexicon, so you know it's not quite as well um, developed in that sense. But um, uh, that's my that's my personal favourite of his sort of invented languages. Um, so for those of you who are interested in looking at that, um, there's quite a bit in the history of Middle Earth series. If uh, you know if you want to get into that, um, but anyway, um, we'll leave it there. And uh, you know, thanks again. And um, hopefully, we'll be back with more Numenor um, next time. So thanks very much. All right. All right. Later.